Hey guys, it's Holly here with the In My Head podcast. Um, This is my first podcast that I am recording, so I am quite nervous. I am freshly showered, just chilling on my bed with my dressing gown on. I've got my pan of coke next to me. Um, I'm freshly moisturised, freshly showered. Um, So I'm just going to start with the usual disclaimer that I'm going to give at the start of every podcast. Um, so the information that I am giving out and the topics that I'm talking about is all just based off information that I have researched off the internet and I've compiled into this one podcast so I do apologize if some of it isn't factual or it is based off opinion Um, but thanks so much for tuning into the podcast and I do hope you enjoy so I'm just going to start off with a little fun something that I'm going to do at the start of every podcast so I'm going to go go through fact of the day, song of the day, word of the day and hopefully just kind of break the ice a bit because like I said I'm quite nervous so hopefully this just lightens the mood and gets everybody ready for the good vibes okay. So the fact of the day and the song of the day and all the all the intro, intro information I'm going to give is based it is based around the topic so the topic today that I'm kind of going to be looking at is a key theme in all of these so my fact of the day is that the human brain can generate about 23 watts of power which is enough to power a light bulb which is quite extraordinary really Um, and all that power calls for much needed rest of course Um, so adequate sleep helps maintain the pathways in your brain Additionally, sleep deprivation can increase the buildup of a protein in the brain that is linked to Alzheimer's disease. So realistically, if we're not sleeping enough, we're going to get Alzheimer's. So if anyone moans that you're sleeping and chilling, then just relay that information to them and I'm pretty sure they'll let you sleep however much you want. So if your mum's yelling at you to get up on a Sunday morning, just say, no mum, like, I'm, I'm chilling, I don't want to catch Alzheimer's, like, I'm powering my brain, and I'm pretty sure she'll she'll be fine with that, she doesn't really have an argument against that, to be honest. Um, so, the song of the day is an absolute banger, so it's Head, Shoulders, Knees and Toes by K.I.G., absolute tune, ladies, let me see you get down low, ladies, let me see you get down low, okay, and the word of the day is encephalon, and that is the actual term for the brain so that's quite interesting um on this day in history so in fact today is monday the 7th of march um on monday the 7th of march in 1876 um alexandra bell alexander bell sorry 29 year old um received a patent for his revolutionary new invention which was the telephone so that day he got granted to make as many telephones as he wants and kind of give that off to factories to produce so yeah on that day in 1876 he did get a patent for making the telephone um a quote of the day is one shout out to my manager yolanda um who 
actually introduced me to this video and honest to god if you've not seen it, it is the jokest video i've watched i had actual tears so if you've not watched the video please i beg go and watch the video so the, the quote of the day is jesus christ fenton um and it's basically this guy who's on a dog walk and he's, he's in like a park with deers um, and the dog just starts chasing all the deers and he's shouting Fenton! 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 And then he just goes Jesus Christ Fenton! And, and the dog's just absolutely awful mom running away and it's absolute joke so yesterday when I was working I did listen to that and it actually made my day so shout out for that one thank you that is the quote of the day uh, so as you can guess minus the quote of the day all of the um all of the information that i've just give have read links into the brain and the human brain and the head so you guessed it right this episode is gonna be based on the brain okay and um in my podcast, the reason behind it being called In My Head is because, for anyone who knows me out there, I know hopefully a few of my friends will be listening, some family, so you know that I have some quite wild thoughts and I just come out with the most random stuff. So hopefully this answers some questions that I have in my brain and that other people have in their brain as well, but they just don't ask it because it just sounds stupid. But I don't have that that button in my head that says, don't say that, it just sounds stupid. So I just come out and say it. So this is why I'm kind of making the podcast to kind of to kind of show people what actually goes on in my brain and hopefully other people's brains too and get the unanswered questions answered. And like I said... Um, it is information that I have compiled off the internet um, and I'm putting into this podcast so hopefully it does make sense if anything needs clearing up along the way I will try and do that because um, there is some quite complex words in here and uh, honest to god sometimes I don't even know what they mean but I have done my research so yeah so the first question and the first topic I want to talk about is why do we forget things like where do our thoughts go so when i was covering this there was a lot of information that i found and it is very like psychological and very scientific and i was just trying to be light-hearted doing this like why do i forget things sometimes i i can remember doing my job day to day no problem doing callbacks and stuff like that um, but when it comes to like walking into a room and remembering what I went into the room for or remembering where I put my flat keys, like stuff like that just slips your memory and you can't seem to remember where you put them from. So I just I just found that really interesting. Like where do we where do our thoughts go and why do we forget the simplest things? So um, when I was researching this, I actually found out that the brain does have two million neurons um, and obviously that's quite a lot. And thinking of how many two million neurons is, I've been told this off um, a member of my family that, that I spoke to a while back. Um, and I actually, they actually told me that when you're first born, if you start counting, the moment you come out of your mum's womb, you actually can't even get to a million by the time that you're 64. So or along those lines, it was either 64 or 67, so if you started counting as soon as you came out of the womb, you don't reach a million until you're like 64, so 
if you think how many 2 million is, 2 million is a lot of neurons, boy. We have a lot of neurons in our head, okay? Um, so, bear in mind you've got 2 million neurons in your head. Why do we forget things seems to depend on how a memory is stored in the brain. So, we can learn a language and we, there's people out there that can build spaceships. But we can simply forget where we put our keys or forget why we went into a certain shop. There's kind of two theories that link in with this as to why um, that does happen and why we forget the most simplest things and why we remember the more specific things. So one, one theory and one process is kind of decay. So people who believe in the decay process believe that our memories slowly disappear and fade because of a passage of time during which they've not been accessed or used. So say if you've not done something for a while, you kind of forget how to do it, right? Um, people often say it's like a message in the sand. So as the water moves over the message, it fades away and the writing becomes more fainter. The waves represent the, the brain cells that form a memory and the ocean represents the time passing. So if you're writing something in the sand, the ocean comes along and slowly the writing fades away the more the waves come along so like I said it's like remembering something and then the memory just fading away as as time goes on okay and um, another process is the interference process and that is this is a contrast of the decay theory where memories are made less accessible because of interference or similar information that we've taken in either before or after the memory was created so this means this is another metaphor for this theory so this means that on the beach instead of the sand slowly fading slowly fading away because of the time that washes over it the interference process is like a child coming along and writing over the message that you've made making the memory making the message harder to read so the child represents a new experience and the message it writes is information left behind in the brain by that experience this leads to forgetting because it essentially means overwriting the original message often leading to a false memory so decay is the memory and it's slowly washing away all the time interference is something new coming along and kind of making you forget that memory so these processes don't necessarily compete with against each other but both they collaborate together and cause forgetting so decay happens and interference happens so your memories are interfered with and they decay over time so it's kind of like they collaborate together causing forgetfulness and the primary cause of forgetting something depends on the nature of the initial memory um, so familiarity is a memory process that allows us to remember something but not the exact details so for example someone can have a familiar face but you can't put a name to the face or remember where you know the person from recollection is the contrast of that so you have a recollection of something you can also remember the context so for example you recognize the familiar face and you know the name and where you know them from so this all occurs in a part of the brain called the hippocampus which is an area in brain research that shows the two familiarity and the recollection look and act differently in the brain so it's actually scientifically proven 
that when you recall something and when you're familiar with something they act and look completely different in the brain so the person who looks familiar which is the familiarity is information that is likely to be forgotten because the child writes over in the sand which is interference so when something's familiar it's more likely to be forgotten with interference and whilst you're in the recollection process so you're recalling something happened you're recalling knowing someone and knowing where you recognize them from and recalling who the person is is more likely to disappear due to the waves washing over them in the sand which is decay so that memory is more likely to fade over a period of time because you've not seen them for a while for example so say you know someone you know where you know where you know the name you know where they're from that's likely more that's more likely to disappear because of a passage of time whereas if you know if someone's familiar to you it's more likely to disappear because of interference so another person's coming and kind of brought your attention if that makes sense so things that we recollect are prone to interference and things that seem familiar decay over time because their memory is kind of not not that prone in your mind not that present so the combination of both forgetting processes means that the the message that was written or the experience is unlikely to ever remain exactly the way that it happened so the fact that it's decaying and it's been interfered with means the experience is unlikely to ever remain exactly how it happened so you may think something happened this way in the past but it's never exactly the way that it actually happened and that's that's been scientifically proven so research has shown that 56 percent of information is forgotten within an hour of actually learning the information that's crazy to me so say if you learn like a maths equation right now that's half of that information more or less half over half of the information is going to be forgotten within an hour 66 percent after a day and 75 percent after six days so unless you're actively practicing something and actually doing it you're more likely to forget it and that 56% of something in an hour is is extortionate that's that's crazy to me because I can remember things from years and years and years ago but I can't remember what I had for dinner yesterday actually yeah I do that's a lie I had noodles because honestly your girl's on a budget she eats noodles slipping every day so yeah and there is another form of forgetting actually which I found quite interesting which people actually tend to do more often than I thought and that's motivated forgetting so motivated forgetting happens when people want to forget things like a past trauma or something bad that's happened to you and you just want to forget it say you've been you've been in a bad scenario you've been in a bad relationship you've had an argument with your friend people want to forget that right so that's an act of forgetting that humans actually do as well so that's either done through suppression or repression so suppression is a conscious form of forgetting something so you're actively when you're conscious so you're at work for example and a memory pops into your head and you're thinking nope nope forget forget think about something else that's called suppression so that's a conscious form of forgetting so that's you absolutely dismissing the memory and focusing on something new 
Repression is when an unconscious form of forgetting happens. That isn't universally accepted by all psychologists because it's difficult, if not impossible, to do. So, say you're sleeping, for example, you're not going to know if you're trying to forget something. You're sleeping. I'm dreaming. I'm in the clouds. I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be trying to forget things when I'm sleeping. So that's why it's not universally accepted by a lot of psychologists because it is difficult, if not impossible, to do. So. Long story short, we forget things based off this this whole topic, this question. From what I've gathered, we forget things when we're not actively using them or when it's just been a familiar interaction. So we can go to work every day and do our job spot on 100% because we do that every day. We're actively using those skills. Whereas if you if you go away from something for a while and then try to do it a few years later, you're most likely not going to remember how to do that. Because remember that fact, after seven days, after six days, sorry, 75% of that is lost. So you're going to be able to do it at 25%. I believe that that maths right. Oh, is it 25% or is it 25%? No, it's 25, it's 25%. So you're going to be able to do that task or remember that person 25% accurate so yeah people can say it's like riding a bike you've not rode a bike for 15 years so you're going to be able to ride a bike 25% the level that you were able to six years ago six days ago six months ago so after six days if you're not actively using the skills that you've learned or you're not actively remembering memories and there's it that's physically impossible we can't run over every single memory that we've had since birth and that's why we lose a lot of our childhood as well either because it's like traumatic you're trying to you're trying to suppress it um, and that's motivated forgetting or whether something's come along interfered with that process and it's caused you to forget about your childhood or whether it has just decayed over time and that I believe it's because it's decayed over time. Your memory, your brain doesn't stop growing, I believe, till you're around 25 years old. So the memories that you've made when you were a young child are not going to be up to par with the memories that you've got today because you've not been actively reliving those memories in your head every single day until now. So it's, it's bound to happen. You're bound to forget things. To me, that's why when we walk out of a room, and forget why we went why we went into the other room and forgot forgot basic things like why we went to the shop it's because other things have interfered with that with that thought with that memory of of actively remembering why you went there so other things in the day have kind of took over took over that thought process and now they're they're the prime memories that are on your mind so say if you went to the shop to buy a luke seed you've got to the shop You've completely forgot what you went to the shop for and you cannot for the life of you remember why you went there. So you're in the shop looking around, not knowing why you're there and not knowing what you wanted to buy. More often than not, that's because you've gone into the shop and since you've had the thought of going to the shop and buying a Lucasade and actually getting to the shop, something in your something in your brain has been triggered and interfered with that with that memory. Um, so that's 
that's kind of the theory of interference and why why we forget basic things like where we've put our keys or why we went to a certain place we're all a bit dixy we all forget basic things um but you're not just completely losing your mind it is down to a different varying factors in your life so interference decay um, whether you're suppressing certain thoughts whether you're rep repressing certain thoughts and whether it's actually motiv motivated forgetting so there is a lot of factors that come into play as to why our memory does does um decay and why we do forget the most basic things so i hope that has kind of got that topic out the way and answered your question on why you're like you're so forgetful or why why these things happen to you i hope that's kind of giving you a little bit of clarity um so yeah on to the next topic For the next topic, we're going to be talking about why do people have irrational fears? Where do, they, where do they come from? How do they develop? And why do we fear the most ridiculous things? Like, I have a fear of um, small, tiny holes, um, like, built up in one condensed space, and I believe that's called trypophobia. Um, and I'm kind of looking into why why do we have those fears when we know that those small tiny holes aren't going to cause us any harm, they aren't going to do anything to impact our life. So where does that fear actually come from? Um, so during the research, I have actually realised that many phobias do develop as a result of having a negative experience or even a panic attack related to a specific object or situation. There could be a link between your own specific phobia or fear and the fear of your parents and this could be down to genetics or learned behaviours. So say if your parents are acting strange, they're acting scared of a certain thing, that could be that could be then put onto you as a minor and you could start picking up on those behaviours and being scared of that yourself. So genetic fears to a specific phobia range from around 25% to 65%, although it isn't known which genes have a leading part because no specific phobia gene has been identified. So no specific gene is responsible for that. So variants in several genes may cause a person to develop a number of psychological symptoms and disorders, including this specific phobia. So the research on genetic disorders is very limited due to non-genetic contributions like the environment or like learned behaviours, um, as well as overlaps in phenotypes. So genetic phobias are more common in people with panic disorder or agoraphobia, which is the fear of being in public spaces. So panic disorder and agoraphobia generally coexist and can be passed through genetically often stemming off and leading to more irrational phobias so if you've if you've got a panic disorder or you've got a fear of being in public spaces that can then affect how you feel about things in that environment so if if you're scared some something's going to trigger a panic attack you you're not going to actively put yourself in the situation where you're going to have a panic attack so that kind of creates that fear then and the agoraphobia, meaning being in public spaces, that can that can trigger irrational fears also because say if you're out in the park on a on a on a walk, you see a dog, you're automatically gonna be triggered then because you're in a public space, you see a dog and you think, Oh my gosh, this dog 
this dog's looking a bit scary even though it's on a lead it could attack me it's being friendly with its owner your mind's then constantly being over overworked and you're scared that that dog is going to attack you even though there's absolutely no there's no scenario why the dog would attack you it's on a lead it's with its owner but the fact that you're in that public space that's been passed through genetically the agoraphobia agoraphobia sorry that kind of creates that that panic then in your mind and what's going to happen whilst you are in that public space so environmental environmental um, components come into play a person might develop a phobia after a specific frightening event or if they feel out of control even hearing or witnessing a traumatic experience can contribute to the fear being built up so say if you are watching a tv show and you see a plane crash that's that could then trigger a fear of you flying because because you know that that that's a horrendous experience you know that that those people on that plane are most likely gonna die and the fact that you've watched that is then triggering your brain to thinking oh my gosh should i be scared to fly should i should i not go on a plane but in reality the probability of that actually happening to you is very very slim there's probably no chance no chance in this lifetime that you're ever gonna you're ever gonna have a plane crash or something like that will happen to you it is hard to pinpoint exactly where the phobia comes from because people tend to do a poor job of identifying the sources of their fears so say if you're say if you've got a fear of sugar there's no rational there's no rational explanation to why you have a fear of sugar but you're just scared of it so people with eating disorders might have this might have this fear of sugar people who are scared of gaining weight may have this fear of sugar people with diabetes may be scared of sugar but the source of that is the diabetes the weight gain the eating disorder it's not the actual fear itself which is sugar so exposure therapy can help subside people's fears which is a form of cognitive therapy which means exposing the individual to the particular fear to help diminish the fear and over time completely overcome it so say if you've got a fear of spiders start thinking about spiders i know i know it's not the best thing to start thinking about but it could it could happen with anything so if you are in this scenario think of the object that you're scared of so in this example we're going to say spiders so think of spiders then when you feel like you can think of spiders without getting freaked out look at pictures of spiders when you've looked at a picture of a spider and that's passed and you feel fine looking at spiders because you know you know it's in in your phone it's on the tv so the spider's not actually present when you finally overcome that then perhaps go to a zoo look at spiders through a glass window and eventually the, the more and more you do that you will actually diminish the fear and overcome it so you know if you live in the if you live in the uk like myself you know in the uk there's if any very very small amounts of species of spider that can actually cause like a death threat or have a major impact on your life if there even is any i i don't think there is personally i don't believe there's any like deathly spiders venomous spiders in the uk that are actually supposed to be here that are like born here they could be like imported or whatever as pets which i'm pretty sure is illegal but you know illegal activity happens all the time it could happen so the 
the actual process of you encountering um, a, a, a venomous spider is very, very low, if not zero. So that fear is irrational. You have no reason to be fear, feared of spiders. You can just squash them with your shoe, for gosh sake. So why are you why are you scared of spiders when you know that you're never going to encounter a time in your life that that spider can cause any kind of threat to yourself? So it is easier to get rid of an irrational fear without knowing where it was caused using exposure therapy. So arachnophobes substantially outweigh the people who have actually been injured by spiders, yet many people still fear them. So there's more arachnophobes, so people that fear spiders, in the world than there is people who've actually encountered a bad experience with a spider. So people fear spiders more than there is people who've had an encounter with a spider. So if we are given enough information, we may figure out that things are scary through instructional fear acquisition. So an example of this is horror films do this quite a lot by pretending everyday things are scary, such as birds or mirrors, which obviously can stay with you for a long time. I sometimes get scared when I look in the mirror in case someone's behind me, which can often result in an irrational fear or phobia. So films play everyday objects as scary, like I said, mirrors. When a lady's in the bathroom in the film, she's looking up into the mirror, she looks down to the sink, she looks back up in the mirror, there's a man behind her in the mirror. That that then triggers something in your brain that thinks, oh my gosh, I'm petrified of mirrors, I'm so scared of this happening to me. But the likelihood of that actually happening is a very, very slim, that is an irrational fear. You know your house is locked, there's no one in your home, but you're still scared, which is very irrational. There's no reason for you to be scared. You know there's no one in there. You know the doors are locked. Um, and the chance of that happening is very, very narrow. So one criteria for diagnosing a fear is making sure that the person is aware of the irrational nature of their fear. So say you're scared of mirrors and that someone's going to be behind you. You, To diagnose the fear, you need to make sure that person is aware that the the nature of the fear is irrational. So when they come to terms with the fact like, oh yeah, I have locked my doors, there is no one in my home, like that's not gonna happen to me. They can then get over that fear because they've realized that that the source of their fear is irrational. So in regards to fears and phobias, there are a lot of brain regions involved, such as the insular cortex and the amygdala. If you, you can't physically put someone in a situation to encounter the fear that they're afraid of to show them that it's harmless. So as far as the brain is concerned, the fear is a negative physical consequence. On a, so on a subconscious level, the fear is actually self-fulfilling. So the fear is fulfilling itself because the brain tells the fear that it is scared of it. So let's put that into a bit of context. So let's use an example. So. The, the fear is the spider, which is a negative physical consequence of people being attacked by spiders. So on a subconscious level, the fear is the fear is spiders because you've had a negative physical consequence with someone being attacked by a spider. That fear is self-fulfilling, so the fear is the fear's fulfilling itself because the brain tells the fear that it's scared of it. So the fear's kind of feeding itself because it knows that the brain is scared of it. So when you slowly start to expose yourself to the therapies and to actually realise that there's no rational explanation as to why you're scared of spiders, 
the brain will kind of be like oh yeah i'm not scared of it and then the fear will disappear because the brain knows that that it's scared the fears constantly feed in itself so it's always going to be there until you kind of pinpoint where that fears come from and you realize yourself that that's actually irrational so in the long run we're scared of to wrap this topic up we're scared of things that are irrational and that aren't gonna have an, an impact on our life we're scared of mirrors we're scared of birds i know someone who's scared of brown soap and that is completely irrational the brown the brown soap is a soap it's not going to do anything to you so why are you scared to then use that and scared to look at it the fact is because of environmental inputs that people have been telling you the fact that you might know someone who's had a bad experience with brown soaps and now you're scared of the brown soap the fact that your parents or your grandparents may, might have a fear of brown soap and they've said to you don't use brown soap it's bad for you blah 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 it's scary it will give you a rash so now you're petrified of this brown soap when actually that's irrational if you actually went 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 ahead and used the brown soap you realize nothing's going to happen to you and the fear that you had was actually irrational so that's that topic um we shouldn't be scared of things we shouldn't have fears of irrational objects or irrational irrational scenarios because most likely they're never going to happen to you and this next topic is really something that's quite interesting to me and i do really love this concept and um, because for people that know me i do laugh a lot i have a bellowing laugh and i often get ripped for it so what is laughter why do we laugh what is funniness why and why do we fake laugh why do we laugh, find things funny that others don't so during this research i actually figured that i i didn't actually deep this um until i was researching it but we do actually laugh before we can talk um so you tickle a baby and they can't even say hello yet but they can laugh um, so laughter has evolved from panting from our ancient ancestors. So today if we tickled monkeys, they don't laugh, they pant, and that's the sound of ape laughter, which is the root cause of human laughter. So apes laugh in conditions human laughs, like through tickling, through rough play, and chasing games. Other animals make noises which are too different to equate them with laughter, so it's too hard for people to analyse those other animals because we're not actually sure if that is laughter because the sounds are so different, we can't really compare them with that. So laughter occurs unconsciously, you don't decide to laugh. Whilst we can consciously inhibit, we can't can we can't consciously produce laughter which is why it's hard to fake laugh or laugh on command so laughter serves as a social function it's a way for us to signal to another person that we hear what they're saying and we want to connect with them so we're all we're almost 30 times more likely to laugh in a group than by ourselves which is true as a matter of fact because yeah i can laugh by myself i can see funny things but when we're in a group and we're all bouncing off each other that's when the belly laughs kicking that's when you're really having a good time and you are laughing at your most powerful so 
little is known about the specific brain mechanisms responsible for laughter, but we do know laughter is triggered by many sensations and thoughts and that it activates many parts of our body. So laughter is like crying. In, is, it's in a way, for example, an infant to interact with other people and recognise what they're feeling. So when you see a baby laugh, you know that they they like that, they find it funny, they find it satisfying and that's their way of signalling to their mother or the, their their occupier that they that they hear that and they feel that and they they find it satisfying and they like it. That's the way for the infant or the baby to kind of interact with other people because they can't talk. Like I said, we laughed before we could talk. It's just like crying. If something upsets them or it hurts them or they don't like it, they're going to cry. Again, that's another that's another social cue and that's a way for the surrounded people to identify what what that person is feeling. It's very uncommon for us to laugh at jokes. We fake laugh at jokes because our brain makes a decision for us to act and it's kind of like a social glue that binds relationships. So if someone says a joke, and it's obviously not funny, who who laughs at jokes? It's very common for someone to make the decision to fake laugh because that is a social glue and that keeps the relationship there. Whereas if we didn't laugh, uh, the, the other person would kind of clock onto that and realise like we've not found that funny and that would kind of hinder the relationship. So in order to kind of keep that social glue there and the relationship there, we do we do socially laugh and we laugh at things we don't find funny to kind of keep the relationship with that person and to kind of show them that we are listening and that we're not just being completely rude. So this is very weird what I actually found out um, and I do apologize for the wording in this because it can it can come across quite um strange as a way to put it so laughter may be a replacement for the act of grooming grooming so obviously this isn't socially acceptable to establish bonds so instead of grooming grooming someone like petting someone hugging someone instead of that laughing is a more more chosen socially accepted method of connecting and making friends so if you're trying to connect with someone who you don't know and you're trying to make them your friend you're not just gonna walk right on over give them a hug like you're gonna have a conversation with them first you're gonna laugh with them first and that's when they kind of get that cue that you're hearing them and that 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 relationship is kind of forming a bond through laughter so we're not just gonna start grooming people out here please don't start grooming people that's why laughter's there to kind of establish that boundary first all right so laughter is harder to fake than grooming because yeah you can go and hug someone and you you don't know you can't tell if a hug's fake like you're hugging someone a hug's a hug you know so laughter's harder to fake because it sounds different it feels different it looks different their facial expression on that person who's laughing is different so laughter's harder to fake than grooming without being obvious you can you can fake laugh at someone to please them but you're not going to touch them or hug someone 
to please them because you don't want to please them if you're not comfortable with that person and you don't want any sort of connection or friendship with them you're not going to go out there and start hugging them you'd much rather just keep the peace and have a little laugh to to set that boundary and kind of make that acquaintance instead of actually hugging them um because you let's say you've had an argument or it's someone who you don't agree with their kind of point of view but you just have to keep the peace you don't really want any beef so you're just gonna laugh along with them yeah yeah and they're gonna they're gonna hear that they're gonna think okay like this person matches my energy like we're all right but if you don't like this person you dislike them you're not gonna go overboard and start grooming them or hugging them which is why laughter is a more suitable relationship former it's a more accepted social cue so the response of the brain makes the makes the smile or it makes the laugh the response in the brain making us smile or laugh provides a way of mirroring the behavior of the other which will help us interact socially so say you're in a group someone smiles at you you're gonna smile back because that's the trigger in your brain um your brain's kind of laid out to mirror behaviors of other people so i this was an using example yesterday actually which i quite find quite interesting um so they there's a, a little kid who's living with like his grandparents and it's like a viral video and obviously he's living with elderly people so elderly people kind of walk a bit slower they put their hands on their hips the baby is putting his hands on his hips he's walking a little slower he's he's got his hands behind his back he's like hunched over because they're mirroring the they're mirroring the behavior of the people that they're around that's how they grow up that's how they grow up to be their own person so when we smile or laugh it's kind of the same aspect so we're kind of mirroring the behaviors of the social circle which will help us interact with them so laughing can be done in a larger group and it gives more of an immediate impression when we laugh genuinely it signals that we are comfortable and we like where we belong whereas if you're grooming someone if you're touching someone if you're hugging someone it does that also but there's no kind of there's no kind of form there first there's no kind of boundary there first so that's why laughing and smiling is used socially to kind of set that formation and get that boundary set for later on grooming so you can hug someone after you've got the the foundation there you're not just going to go up to someone you don't know hug them and then start the conversation you're going to go over to someone start a conversation laugh with them and then hug them so it's kind of it's kind of played like that um so it's more of an immediate impression in a larger group and it gives more of a, a genuine signal that we're comfortable and we belong so that's that's why we laugh that's why funniness is there and that's why people tend to laugh more in groups because we're mirroring the behaviors of other people so there is a lot of physical benefits along with laughing along with smiling um, and these are just to name a few let alone does it does it feel great like we know it we know belly laughing is there's no feeling like it like when you have a belly laugh with your friends like that's when you truly start a relationship and once they've seen you in that state where you've got tears coming down your face like that's when you know that they're, they're there for life there's no getting rid of them okay so the physical benefits of laughing is 
an increase in oxygen intake which can stimulate your heart lungs and muscles so when you're laughing you're kind of obviously you're losing your breath you're taking in more oxygen so that can stimulate your heart your lungs and your muscles so that's a great benefit to it it actually releases endorphins as well which make you feel good and can even relieve pain or stress so if you're stressed or you're in pain just start laughing to yourself and then those laughs those fake laughs will turn into real laughs because your brain will signal that someone's laughing and then try to mirror the behavior so if you're fake laughing then you're going to release endorphins through real laughing because your brain knows to mirror that behavior so it'll make you feel good you can relieve pain and stress so if you're feeling a little stressed just have a little bit of a laugh and you're going to be all right so the act of increasing and decreasing your heart rates and blood pressure through laughter is also a calming and release tension so i i kind of disagree with this one because when you're laughing i know my blood pressure's through the roof because my veins are pulsing in my brain but apparently it is a fact that the act of increasing and decreasing your heart rates so and that calms you down eh so you're laughing you're all hyper but I guess, I guess it is true because after the laugh, you feel calmer and you feel like the tension's gone in your body. Yeah, that, that does make sense. So, also, it can boost your immune system response. That's a bit confusing. So, it can boost your immune system response through the release of stress and illness, which reduces neuropeptides. Okay so it can boost your immune system through the release of stress and illness which reduces neuropeptides so when you're laughing it it kind of releases stress and like i said decreases your heart rate and your blood pressure and so that can have a long-term effect on any illnesses Hmm, interesting so that's quite a fun fact so essentially in to wrap it up laughter signals cooperation which is a key aspect of human survival because if you're not cooperating with people every man for himself you know if you're not cooperating with people you're out there by yourself so that's what laughter is there for it's to kind of be the social glue establish relationships and bonds and then kind of build from there um so it is it is an aspect of human survival Various theories have put forward that people find amusement in the misfortune of others. So this is why this is why people laugh at things they shouldn't laugh at because people find amusement in the misfortune of others in expressions of forbidden emotions and in the juxtaposition of incompatible concepts and in realizing that the certain expectations have been violated so the the concepts incompatible and then you've realized that those expectations have been violated which means it makes it funny so weaving all these hypotheses together a theory is that humor arrives when a person recognizes that a norm has been breached and the breach is harmless so say you fell over which is the breach a norm that's been breached because you should just be walking 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 you're falling over that norm's been breached and then you you think oh my god that person's fell over like are they all right and then they get up they're all right they're not injured 
and then the breach is harmless so you realize that them falling over has actually caused them no harm so it is funny that is why that is why we we laugh at things that we shouldn't laugh at because once you've realized that it's actually harmless and that that it's not caused the person any kind of discomfort that's when it becomes funny because if, if, if it was harmful and if it did cause some discomfort it wouldn't be funny because that the person's actually injured so in the long run if if the breach is harmless and the falls harmless it ha- it's with anything so let's let's try and think of an example here so let's say someone's talking which is a norm the norm's been breached because the person started spitting when they talk so that that person's realized they've spat when they talk it's harmless though it's not gone on anyone it's not it's not kind of creating a waterfall so it's funny because it's not caused anyone any harm or any discomfort so the spit that's come out is funny and that the breach is harmless the breach of that spit coming out is harmless so it kind of creates an element of funniness there so that is why we do laugh at things that are just day-to-day normal because it's kind of the the concept of a breach a norm being breached and then the breach being harmless so that's what does create the funniness so guys to wrap this up thank you so much for listening i do hope we have got some clarity on just general questions that do linger in our heads when we just lay there at night looking up at our ceiling i hope it kind of has put some of those into perspective for you and i do apologize if i have rambled like i said it is my first podcast so hopefully after this episode it'll be a lot easier and i know how to speak i know the mic's right i know how to edit and not to fumble my words so i do apologize if there is a bit of fumbling of the words there but it is my first episode i'm so excited that it's it's done and i've done it and i've took this leap of faith um so i just want to thank everybody for listening this should be going up on tuesday the 8th so I'm going to do them kind of weekly so I'm going to more time I'm going to try and record on the Sunday and get it up for the Monday that's why the fact of the day and the um the history on this day in history was based on Monday because I was aiming to get it up on Monday but I have had a really busy week a really busy weekend I've been working all weekend so um hopefully in future I'm going to record on the Sunday and get it up on the Monday so you know when you're on your little commute to work you can have a little one to listen uh, you can tune in and hopefully get some perspective on lifelong questions that nobody's answered for you um so yeah so next week i'm gonna see you all on monday and not tuesday but this will be up on tuesday the 8th 2022 i'm just hoping that next week it's gonna be on the monday because i'm gonna pre-record on the sunday okay so thank you so much for listening guys thanks for all your support it is something about doing for a while and i hope that you've enjoyed it so please come back next week thank you